Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 18 and uh, another set of interesting guests this week. A lot to talk about, so much happening in the world. But before I throw it over to them, um, I want to, again, as usual, make my uh, appeal about Counterpunch here because... As I mentioned, you know, there's so many things happening in the world right now, and it seems like the world is getting ever more chaotic, ever crazier, and more difficult to understand. And yet, somehow, the mainstream media, the corporate media, the Western media seems to make it more confusing. They make it harder and harder to really discern the truth. And I don't think that's an accident. This has to do with a lot of the things we've talked about here on this program corporate control, feeding into a dominant narrative, the narrative of the ruling class. And all of this is within this controlled media paradigm. And then you have little old Counterpunch. You have alternative media outlets, Counterpunch, in my opinion, being one of the best. And um, it depends on people like you for support. So one of the good ways that you can really support Counterpunch and the Counterpunch Project is by getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's not a terribly large amount of money. You get an excellent magazine coming into your mailbox. And look, I mean... How many publications out there are still printing on paper, for God's sake? And then there's Counterpunch with interesting artwork on the cover, great columns every issue, lots of really great content every single time it comes to your it comes to your apartment or to your house or whatever. So I really enjoy getting it. I enjoy perusing the magazine and having it over the course of a month or two and being able to refer back to it. So consider doing that. Also, support this podcast with the iTunes reviews. Those iTunes reviews have been great so far. I want to urge people to continue to post them. It helps bring Counterpunch Radio to more listeners via the iTunes recommendations. So that's really important as well. I'm trying to build something with this podcast, and we're trying to continue to provide it for free as an uh, open uh, platform for people to get a new perspective on all, all of those great things you're getting from Counterpunch. Anyway. All of that out of the way, I want to turn to my first guest this week. Um, I'm very happy to welcome Mark Sloboda onto the program. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow. He is a veteran of the U.S. Navy and the nuclear engineering, an expert on a lot of issues, uh, especially on um, what's happening in Eastern Europe. And uh, I've been in touch with Mark, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to consider him a colleague and a friend and he is somebody that is one of the best resources that I know of on analysis on what's going on in Ukraine. You should follow him on Twitter as well, at MarkSloboda1. Mark Sloboda, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Eric, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on Counterpunch. I'm a regular reader. Thanks, Mark. Um, listen, we have limited time and a lot to talk about, and I know you have a wealth of knowledge on these subjects, so let's dive right in. Um, it's interesting. About six months ago, everybody was talking about Ukraine. Everybody was talking about the, the war on Donbass and all of these things, and I think to some degree, it's kind of fallen a little bit out of the headlines with what's happened with ISIS and Syria and a lot of these other issues, and then, of course, the hoopla around U.S. presidential elections, which are still more than a year away. But I want us to talk about uh, Ukraine and specifically an interesting thing that happened in Kiev in the last uh, week to 10 days or so. Let, tell us a little bit about what happened and what are the latest developments in regards to the conflict in Kiev itself? Okay. Uh, first, for the, the listeners uh, who aren't familiar with me, I want to do a little bit of full disclosure. Uh, I 
do uh, very much have a personal interest uh, and access to uh, information on the ground in Ukraine. My wife is Crimean. My wife of 13 years is Crimean. Um, we have family in Simferopol, but we also have family all over uh, East Ukraine, uh, Donbass, Kharkov, Odessa. So uh, I do have uh, a little bit of uh, egg in that basket, but a little bit of ear on the ground as well. Uh, just so you're a full disclosure, you're aware of the context I'm, I'm speaking from. Um, so what happened in Kiev uh, in the last week is being portrayed in uh, the Western media um, as uh, far-right protesters who protested against a decentralization bill in Kiev uh, outside the Rada, and that these protests got violent uh, and a number of people were killed. And now... Um, the Western press is openly talking about the far right and neo-Nazis, something that they dismissed as a Russian propaganda uh, for uh, much of, of over the last year and a half. Um, but um, they're now talking about it openly, but they're presenting it as a few bad apples. Uh, they've moved from there are no Nazis to a few bad apples argument. Now, what is actually happening is that the Ukrainian Rada, directed uh, by the president of the regime there, uh, this oligarch Poroshenko, uh, put forward a decentralization bill that would, uh, in its final reading, um, uh, amend the Ukrainian constitution. The vote was just on the first reading. There's a long way to go, much higher obstacles. This bill is supposed to be uh, Ukraine fulfilling its commitments to the Minsk II agreements between France, Germany, uh, the Ukrainian government in Kiev, uh, the um, uh, people of the Donbass, the forces in Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, and the Russian government as well. Uh, there's a long series of, of requirements for a peaceful political settlement that hasn't been working too well a decentralization of power from the federal government and special status uh, to the Donbass is uh, uh, th this change in the Ukrainian constitution is a specific requirement of Minsk. Uh, Mark, let me just, Mark, I just mm -hmm. want to jump in real quick to clarify for listeners. I think that there was a misconception for a lot of people that the Minsk II agreement was simply a ceasefire, which it was not. Part of it was a ceasefire that is withdrawing the heavy artillery to demarcated lines and ceasing the hostilities, at least um, the combat hostilities on the ground. But in fact, Minsk II was a much broader political document that was designed to actually move the peace process forward. And that's the, that's the element of it that Mark is getting at, these political uh, um, uh, criteria within Minsk too. Go ahead. Yeah, it was supposed to be a political settlement uh, by which Russia would, the Kremlin, would help push Donbass back into the Ukraine uh, just with a degree of regional, uh, we don't, I don't even want to use the word autonomy because that's considered too strong a word, but some regional political, economic, and language rights, to, you know, control their own political environment. That has been the Kremlin's goal uh, all along. Um, and uh, this Minsk, too, was seeing that through. 
Um, however, what Minsk II also necessitates is that there must be direct dialogue and compromise between the Kiev uh, regime and the authorities and the Bas on this decentralization bill. There has been none. The Kiev regime openly refuses to have open discussions with the authorities in Donbass, which it calls terrorists. Um, and uh, um, so there has been no agreement uh, on this decentralization bill at all. In fact, both uh, the authorities in Donbass uh, and Russia says that this decentralization bill fell well short of what uh, was envisioned uh, in the talks, and that this is, in fact, a poison pill bill. But even as a poison pill, there was uh, a lot of resistance to this um, by uh, political forces uh, within the regime that has come to power in Kiev, not with the Ukrainian people, which uh, U.S. conducted polls show us that 67% of the Ukrainian people support this decentralization bill and 70% want a uh, peaceful settlement uh, to the conflict in East Ukraine. However, uh, the uh, many of the uh, far-right uh, forces, uh, certain factions with them in them anyway, that were present from the Maidan, uh, Putsch, all the way up through the government today, are not happy with this. Um, they protested uh, both outside, well, I shouldn't say protested, they fought against the bill uh, as paltry and a moot thing as it already is, uh, both inside the parliament uh, where their fist fights broke out, they tried to seize the podium to prevent voting uh, on it, etc. But then also outside the parliament, the Ukrainian Rada, uh, where um, these, um, uh, again, far-right uh, uh, political, um, shall we call them activists, shall we call them paramilitary, which most of them were, uh, represented by the Svoboda, an open neo-Nazi party, uh, the right sector, uh, and others. Uh, many of their, the leader of this party, who was one of the three leaders of the Maidan, and an open neo-Nazi, Oleg Tjanibak, was leading the attack on the police. The Maid former Maidan minister of agriculture was there. The MP who signed, uh, drafted the Ukrainian, new Ukrainian law creating the so-called National Guard was attacking National Guardsmen. The end result of all this violence is that uh, nearly 150 uh, police officers and National Guardsmen were injured, um, and four uh, uh, National Guardsmen were killed. It's important to recognize this by other National Guardsmen. Now, uh, that is that it's not the far right fighting against the government. It is a far right regime in the Ukraine whose factions are fighting and killing each other in Kiev. And I think that what's interesting about this, and first of all, um, 
uh, I think I'll just say I take no pleasure in being able to say I told you so because I think that you, Mark, and I and many others had said that this was the likely outcome of the regime that took control in Kiev and its relationship with these Nazi elements, these fascist groups, because, of course, the fascists uh, of the right sector and the Azov Battalion and some of these other uh, militants. Yeah, exactly. All of these, all of these militant, these paramilitary factions, they are not simply military forces. They are political forces. forces. And many of them are in the employ of a wide range of oligarchs, a wide range of nefarious actors, all of whom have their sights set on power, all of whom want to get a piece of the quote unquote new democratic Ukraine. And so Poroshenko is an oligarch sitting in Kiev but surrounded by a coterie of these Nazi groups. And these Nazi groups, they're the ones who are now rising up against even a modicum of political dialogue, even a a, a token move towards political settlement um, vis-a-vis what's happening in eastern Ukraine. And this is, in fact, what was predicted. That is to say, the blowback of using Nazis as the right wing of the new regime. Yeah, I, I want to stress that this is not just the far right against the government. The government itself is, is the far, far right. right. Yeah. The president's party, uh, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk's party, both have many of these far right leaders within their own parties. Yep. Um, the, you have uh, Perubi, who was the former uh, uh, National Security Council director. He, uh, uh, since the Maidan, he was the co-founder of the Svoboda Party, which was originally called the National, the Social Nationalist Party of Ukraine, an open neo-Nazi party. The uh, open Aryan white power neo-Nazi commander of the uh, Azov Battalion, uh, Andrei Boletsky. Uh, uh, the Azov Battalion is the battalion uh, that has been uh, cherry-picked uh, uh, but identified by the U.S. Congress uh, through an amendment by Representative John Conyers as an open neo-Nazi battalion that U.S. money should not be sent to, as if <laughs> as if the <laughs> others the were. Yeah, right, there. exactly. As if, yeah, if the only ones there. But at least we had that much recognition. He is a member uh, in, in the top 10 on the party list uh, for the prime minister's party. Um, and, uh, you know, he's you've got these figures like Boletsky, Yarosh. These are all members of the Ukrainian parliament. But I, Mark, I want to stress, I want to stress here for listeners, though, when you're saying that these are members of the parliament, we shouldn't think of them as po- as political figures solely because, for instance, Yarosh is a key founder of the right sector. So in many ways, you have these, these individuals who are simultaneously political figures and paramilitary leaders. And that illustrates, I think, the dynamic in Ukraine that there is very little separation between the regime and these Nazi paramilitaries. Well, even more, not only is there a little separation between them, but it also highlights that the state does not have a monopoly on violence yeah. in Ukraine. Since the regime came to power through violence and then used these paramilitaries in the early days when it didn't have control over the military or the security forces to seize political 
control going to councils all over the country, forcing people to resign with hammers and guns held behind their back. I mean, there's innumerable uh, accounts of all of this. And then pursuing the early days of uh, the uh, war in the Donbass. Um, these uh, paramilitaries are both essential to the regime, both to it coming to power and to its uh, maintaining power, but there's also an internal tension because they're also jockeying and fighting largely over egos, uh, power, um, and um, the state can't control them. Uh, so the, the, you're trapped in this uh, really vicious uh, circle and contradiction here that is this internal contradiction uh, within the Maidan regime in Ukraine came to perfect illustration, perfect light with these riots uh, that killed four National Guardsmen. Again, National Guardsmen killing other National Guardsmen. The national far-right National Guardsmen who killed the other four, there's some uh, conflicting reports of whether most of the deaths occurred because of a grenade that was tossed or firearms. Uh, it's all murky. It's not clear. Uh, but the ones that he killed may have been just as far right as himself. Uh, this is about competing uh, factions and elites within the regime. Yeah, and the other thing, the other thing that I, I want to stress here, though, is that when we're talking about this fighting in Kiev, we should also remember that these are the same elements, these these fascist uh, elements, who are essentially acting as, to varying degrees, uh, death squads in eastern Ukraine. And we have numerous accounts of summary executions, mass graves, all types of atrocities being carried out in the East and generally, and I mean, investigations would be needed, but I think it's generally accepted that those crimes are mostly not committed by regular Ukrainian military. They're committed by these paramilitary, quote unquote, National Guard elements. And these are the elements that are now coming back to Kiev and carrying out this violence. And so the war, the so-called anti-terrorist operation of Eastern Ukraine is directly connected to the violence that we're seeing in Kiev. Yeah, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International themselves have openly stated that these paramilitary units, the National Guard, they call them volunteer battalions, are committing, have committed, and are committing war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, atrocities in Ukraine. There's no question about this. Um, uh, the scale of it, of course, is what is not known and, and hopefully will some someday be known. But um, the reason for this happening is that the Ukrainian military has really, from the beginning, they, they weren't crazy about this regime coming to power. Uh, they resisted it. Uh, the entire Ukrainian military at this point is uh, consists, uh, you know, uh, below the level of the brass of mass forced conscripts, tens of thousands of people. The, the Ukrainian government, uh, the regime has had real problem getting people uh, because they're fleeing the draft like crazy. Many of them, to the largest number of them, tens of thousands of them have fled to Russia. Only half of uh, their uh, conscription goals have been met because of people avoiding the draft. And that really calls into question the whole narrative of this being a popular revolution yeah. if the people of Ukraine don't want to fight and kill for this regime. Um, so in light that they don't have good control uh, and the military isn't quite willing or trained enough to conduct urban combat that would be required uh, to force the Donbass uh, militarily uh, uh, back, uh, you know, well, to, to, to force it, to subjugate it to the new regime. Um, 
what they do is the military is simply uh, sitting back, uh, lobbing artillery, uh, occasionally ballistic missiles and airstrikes in the early days, while these volunteer battalions go in on the ground. So the real question is, uh, we know that these battalions, uh, even the Western press has to admit, are chock full of far-right neo-Nazis, ultra-nationalists, whatever you want to call them, that are committing atrocities. Uh, and it's terrible what they did in Kiev, okay, where they're killing each other and attacking the Rada. No one questions what that it's wrong that these people should be sent to supposedly liberate the people of Donbass yeah, exactly. from terrorists uh, and Russians, where they are committing these atrocities. Uh, how can you expect these people to be winning the hearts and minds of the people of Donbass back for the Ukraine? But let's be, uh, let, let's be honest, Mark, though, because that is only the line for Western consumption. The truth is, and uh, people who either can read Russian language press or Ukrainian language press, they understand that these elements that are going into eastern Ukraine, the Azov and the other Nazi groups, they're not there to win hearts and minds. They are there to ethnically cleanse, to whatever extent they can, the eastern part of Ukraine. They talk about, quote-unquote, yeah. Ukraine for Ukrainians, purifying Ukraine. Truly Nazi uh, language is what they employ, and that is actually their ideological framework. That is their outlook. They want to cleanse eastern Ukraine of what they deem to be the, quote-unquote, the most the Russians. Okay. It's not just them. It's the people who pay and send them. It's the prime minister and the president have both returned yes. to the people of Donbass in a language that was sent out on the presidential website in English as subhumans yes. that need to be cleansed. Now, it was erased soon after, but, you know, there's plenty of, of screenshots. I mean, it was captured. It was remarked in a few things of press. That is, is, is not just the view of the battalions. It is the review of the regime that sends them uh, as well. And I want to be very specific. Um, this is not simply... Uh, the the um, uh, surface idea of ethnic cleansing, and I want to stress this. This is not just Russian ethnic minority, which is a majority uh, in uh, the areas of the Donbass uh, and has high numbers uh, throughout East Ukraine. It is not simply Russian language speakers. Although you could make good generalizations, 80%, so on. Uh, there are Russian ethnics, uh, uh, and Ukrainian ethnics on both sides of the conflict in East Ukraine. There are Russian and Ukrainian primary language speakers on both sides of the conflict. Um, uh, what is a really, it is a question of identity. Uh, you have a regime that has come to power that has a very West Ukrainian, particular Galician concept of Ukrainian identity, which is primarily identified by its Russophobia, its hatred of Russians. And this dates back to uh, when Galicia was incorporated into the Ukraine uh, in uh, 1939. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, uh, the OUN, the UPA's um, open uh, collaboration uh, with Nazi Germany uh, in the invasion of the Soviet Union and the uh, Holocaust, the genocide uh, against Jews, Poles, um, uh, and East and and U other Ukrainians um, in 
uh, Western Ukraine. Well, and and that's actually one thing that I want to touch on very briefly is that when when you hear them talking about the far right, I mean the media when they talk about the far right and they don't, you know, they say that those who call them Nazis is just Russian propaganda. Actually, no, these are the direct descendants of the Nazis in that region. I mean, these are this was their grandfathers who carried out the pogroms in Lvov, in Odessa, in uh, Kiev, Babi Yar, yeah. all of these places. Yeah. This was literally this is their grandchildren carrying out these crimes. It's, it's, it's not just that it's their grandchildren. It's their grandchildren who openly espouse the yes, same exactly. beliefs. Yep. And you're talking about a regime that has openly declared the OUN and the UPA. Uh, you know, that's, the the organi- that's the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, OUN. That were the genocidal Nazi collaborators. This is unquestioned. It was well documented in the Nuremberg trials, however much the new Ukrainian ambassador uh, to the UN has tried to openly <laughs> say that the Nuremberg trials were a hoax, uh, you know, yeah. to, to, uh, to give them a bad name. Uh, you know, there's no question about this. The regime has declared that these organizations, uh, the genocidal Nazi collaborating organizations, are the national heroes and founding fathers of the new Ukraine, the new Ukrainian identity they are trying to impose on the rest of the country. So it's it's not that this is a regime with some far-right elements that it just sends out to do the fighting for it. This is the uh, ideology, this is the indoctrination of the regime itself, passed by the Rada, signed by the president. Genocidal Nazi collaborators are our national heroes, and no one in in the U.S. Uh, or the Western press were not enough, uh, you know, are are even blinking an eye at this. And what's interesting it's, about it, what's interesting about it too, is that Stepan Bandera, who was the leader of the uh, of the Nazis during the during the Nazi invasion, Stepan Stepan Bandera, he had his image rehabilitated not by Poroshenko. He had his image rehabilitated long before the Maidan, uh, after the Orange Revolution, led by Yushchenko and then Timoshenko. He was made into a uh, I forget what the term is, a glorious veteran of Ukraine, a glorious hero. Of uh, of Ukraine by Yushchenko and Timoshenko long before the Maidan happened. So actually, what we're seeing is in many ways the culmination of a longer historical post-Soviet historical process in Ukraine of rehabilitating their Nazi past. Yes, and then when President Yanukovych uh, was elected, uh, the uh, Orange Revolution have been being uh, voted out of office in absolute disgrace. Uh, because of their corruption and, and uh, failure uh, economically and politically to govern the country, Yanukovych then removed that uh, national hero status. The new government has brought it back, and they've gone a step farther, and they have outlawed all leftist parties in the country, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, uh, and another uh, party, uh, another leftist party of the Ukraine. They have openly banned them. They, the new law says that it is a crime to say anything against the um, OUN and the UPA being the national heroes and founding fathers of the country. If you're a historian who comes to Ukraine to do research, uh, uh, and, uh, the real you know, historical truth about this, uh, you, know, you could be fined, thrown in prison, or at the very least kicked out of the country. If yep. you're a Ukrainian uh, and doing the same thing, well, then you'll be one of the many hundreds, if not thousands, of political prisoners uh, of this new regime. And actually, uh, I just want to point out, Counterpunch has been uh, one of the, at the 
forefront of reporting on this, and I have I, I've contributed to that writing about political prisoners in Odessa. We have some of our comrades who are still sitting in prison cells uh, because of journalistic work in Odessa. The same has been the same is true in Kharkov, in a number of other places in Ukraine. This regime has been hostile. They've been murdering journalists. They've been eleven uh, in- journalists and media workers have been murdered uh, in Ukraine. Uh, every one of them that was killed was writing uh, a reporting critically on the new Maidan regime government. Uh, some of them have been assassinated in the streets. Many yep. of them were killed uh, by Ukrainian armed forces, whether through shelling uh, or uh, other methods. Uh, and, and we're talking about people like me. We're talking about bloggers, independent yeah. journalists. You Italian know, yeah. journalists. Most of them were Russian, but many, yeah. some of them were Italian uh, and other foreign as well. And 11, this is... Th- this is this is part of the story that's simply not being told. No. The, the Where question is, is the International Committee uh, to Protect Journalists? Where is Reporter Without Borders? Where is the OSCE? Uh, they were crying whenever uh, they cry anywhere. Every time a Western journalist is detained uh, or touched, much less killed, uh, why? Aren't they saying anything about what is happening uh, to journalists uh, and uh, people who speak out against the new regime? Exactly, Mark. Um, I, I, we could we could go for hours, but I want right, to. Sh- yeah, look, we're real quick. I want to shift gears. Talk about the okay. political cleansing. Okay. Uh, in the Donbas, what is not being reported is the million Ukrainian refugees who have fled. Uh, their own country to safety in Russia, to the supposed aggressor Russia. This has been documented by UNHCR, by the UN. There are a million Ukrainian refugees uh, in uh, Russia from East Ukraine. Uh, And this completely shatters, it can do nothing but completely shatter the whole narrative that the Western governments and that the Kiev regime is trying to present about what's going on being in the East Ukraine, be in Donbass, being Russian invaders or terrorists or what have you. And it's not simply that they're fleeing to Russia because, you know, they have family there or whatever, because they have a common language. I mean, all of that is true, of course. It's the natural place that they would flee to. But it is also because they understand that actually, rather than being the aggressor and the invader, Russia has been playing sort of more or less a middle ground in all of this, because actually, if you follow Russian politics, you can see that the Russian government, that is Putin and some of his closer advisors, they are very much, I would say, dovish on the issue in comparison to many of the more hawkish elements in Russia who have advocated for uh, intervention on humanitarian grounds, who have advocated for the absolute destruction and removal of the fascist regime in Kiev. And so Russia has actually, uh, I think in in many ways, it's been sort of... um, it's dissatisfied a lot of elements in Russia who have advocated more uh, active intervention, but Russia is really taking in these refugees and acting as more or less a, a safety valve for those people. As I, I want to be perfectly frank uh, with uh, the listeners. Uh, as someone who lives in Moscow, someone who has family throughout East Ukraine, Russian civil society is providing much more for the people in Donbass, both in terms of humanitarian aid and support and in terms of military support, yeah, getting them small arms and so on, than the Russian government good is. Good point. That, yeah. that is a, a, a very true uh, neglected fact. 
they are doing Russian civil society. The, the Kremlin, uh, you know, certainly has its interests and wants to see its interests uh, in East Ukraine reflected. But it does not want the Donbass. It has refused it. It, it has uh, it will not take it. It doesn't want to pay for it. It doesn't want the uh, geopolitical uh, consequences, the relations with the West. It wants to force Donbass, willing or not, back into Ukraine yep. simply under terms that will maintain some measure of the Kremlin's influence while also having at least a modicum of protection of the political and social rights of the people of East Ukraine, even knowing they're putting it back into a Nazi you know, a, a regime that glorifies neo-Nazis. I, 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 they they hope in the long term that the regime, of course, will fall economically and politically, but they're perfectly willing to do that right now. I want to come back to that issue of rebuilding Donbass because I, I think that's an, a very neglected aspect of this story as well. But I want to touch on something else that's come out in recent days. Very interesting reports about ISIS, the Islamic State, and other uh, extremist terrorists who are fighting inside of Ukraine and fighting side by side, shoulder to shoulder with these Nazi groups. So it's interesting to me how the United States on the one hand can claim to be fighting a war against the Islamic State in Syria, in Iraq and elsewhere, and then on the other hand, providing the arms and the training for a lot of these elements in Ukraine, where you now have ISIS and and these other extremists fighting there. Very interesting how that's happened. Yeah. Mariupol is a city uh, in Donbass. Um, it is a city that uh, voted very strongly in the referendum uh, a year and a half ago to, um, for the independence of the Donbass uh, from the new government uh, from the state of Ukraine. Um, it was retaken. Uh, it was occupied by uh, the regime's forces uh, a little over a year ago when the conflict first started. Uh, and it is the flashpoint uh, for much uh, of uh, any future conflict that would uh, continue on uh, in the Donbass if things go back into open combat. Right Sector and Azov, two of the biggest uh, and most obvious uh, far-right uh, battalions, paramilitary groups, are stationed occupying that city. They have been very open in the last week. There is an excellent article uh, in the Daily Beast Newsweek by uh, Anna Nemtsova, who is an is a Russian uh, liberal and anti-government, uh, uh, anti-Putin government, uh, very uh, activist and journalist. She has written uh, a piece about how there is this Sheikh Mansour battalion of jihadists uh, from Chechnya and the North Caucasus, not just Chechens, Ingus, Dagestani as well, uh, who are part of the Islamic Caliphate there, um, who fought in Syria with ISIS and were ISIS commanders, who have now come to Ukraine uh, to fight alongside neo-Nazis uh, in Ukraine against Russians, who are the primary object of their hatred. Um, and uh, they call themselves, they've openly franchised themselves out uh, to ISIS. And they now call themselves the Islamic State 
uh, Caucasus uh, or Emirates of the Caucasus. Right? What's That's interesting the- interesting about that too is the long-standing history of U.S. intelligence being uh, essentially the patrons of the what's called the Emirat Kafkas, which was uh, Doko Umarov's organization fighting in Chechnya in the Caucasus against Russia. This is now uh, out in the open, documented history of U.S. collaboration with them, with these extremists in the Caucasus region. Now you have this uh, essentially a confluence of Islamic State, Chechen uh, and uh, Caucasus uh, Islamic extremists, along jihadists. with jihadists, yeah. along with these Nazis, all of them have come together in the fight against Donbass and in the fight against what they perceive to be the fight against Russia. Yeah, and it's uh, it's really ironic uh, that Obama, with the U.S.'s hands behind all of this, Americans, uh, Republicans, uh, right-wingers in the United States, yos love to use the term Islamofascism. Well, thanks to <laughs> Obama's foreign policy, uh, what's going on in the Ukraine, Islamofascism has become a real thing because uh, Wahhabi jihadists are now fighting as brother-in-arms uh, with literal neo-Nazis in the Ukraine. It's not actually the first time. This actually happened in the Chechen War, where a uh, small number, a hundred or so uh, ultra-nationalists, these uh, neo-Nazis from West Ukraine, actually fought on the side of the Chechens in the Chechen Civil War in Russia. Um, They they were fighting there. And a number of those very same people were fighting on the Maidan. Uh, One of them, in fact, uh, died rather spectacularly afterwards when he Mm -hmm. became... uh, uh, quite uh, an embarrassment to the regime because of the uh, the openness and wildness of his views. Um, but this is, you know, this there's this a thread that ties uh, the neo Nazis of Ukraine together with uh, jihadists uh, in the Caucasus. It's uh, come back to the fore now. There were they they po- themselves posted pictures to social media this week showing Dmitry Yadrosh, the leader of the right sector, sitting down and having tea uh, while. Uh, armed guards walk around with Sheikh Manzor uh, of this new uh, uh, is um, jihadist battalion in Ukraine. It's really, really surreal and it's really scary. And it's not getting any media coverage, really, other no. than that one article that you mentioned. Yeah, well, it's not getting. It. Um, I wanna I wanna close with another with another point here because this is something that I said I wanted to return to this. Look. There's a lot of talk about whether or not, um, you know, what is Russia's role? Is Russia supporting Donbass? Are they, you know, do they have, uh, you know, troops in there and what's happening? The reality is that to a large extent, Russia has abdicated any active engagement in really defending Donbass in an active way. What I mean by that is, despite what The Guardian has reported, despite what propagandists in the West have said, Russia has actually, I think, played a very um, outside role rather than an active one. And you mentioned the destruction of the infrastructure in Donbass. This is very important because for the Russian position to try try to force Donetsk and Lugansk and these territories back into Ukraine completely ignores the fact that Ukraine's military and these paramilitaries have utterly devastated what was the industrial heart of the country. All of the infrastructure has been utterly obliterated, the factories, the roads, the schools, the, the power grid, all of these things. Now, the question is, if you were to force these territories, uh, if you were to take the Russian position and the Minsk position and force these territories 
back into some kind of a cohesive and even nominally cohesive Ukraine, how the hell is anybody going to rebuild Donbass? It's not going to happen. So the question is, is Donbass supposed to then accept refederation into Ukraine without any of the reparations that would be coming to it? Yeah, um, it, it, it goes even further than that. Um, it, it, I mean, they were, they were, and if conflict resumed, will be shelling their own cities with heavy artillery, yep. multiple rocket launch systems, airstrikes, ballistic missiles. Right? They're shelling their own cities with that. The, it was the industrial heartland of the Ukraine. It provided the vast majority of its exports. It is completely wiped out. Now, when we go a, a little bit further down the rabbit hole, we see that the former U.S. State Department official, who is now the Minister of Finance of Ukraine, Jaresko, uh, she recently said uh, in an interview that the, the destruction of industry uh, in Donbass could be viewed as a, how did she put it, a, a silver lining, as an um, uh, unexpected benefit to Ukraine, because for their plans for the neoliberalization of Ukraine, uh, they uh, uh, and the realignment of it, they wanted to see all of the industry of the East wiped out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they've already accomplished that. So, um, look, Ukraine doesn't really want the Donbass either because the regime in power knows that any kind of political settlement bringing this back into the country would be such a threat to their own narrative, to their own political power to actually have to deal with these people again uh, in, in, in a modicum of uh, democratic fashion. Uh, they can't, it, it would inhibit their uh, refashioning of Ukrainian identity uh, in, in this new direction. They don't actually want the Donbass. They want it gone. They simply can't be seen as having lost it. Their continual efforts is to dry, try to drive Russia into overtly and openly military supporting it and taking it off their hands. Yeah. Russia doesn't want it either because they don't want the economic or geopolitical consequences. This is all very sad for the people of East Ukraine. They do look to Russia, but Russia doesn't exactly want them. In many ways, whoever wins the Donbass loses the geopolitical struggle in the greater geopolitical proxy war that's going on in the Ukraine. Yeah, well, you know, that's where I want to close here is that it doesn't seem like there's, I mean, of course, there's no easy solution here, but ultimately there will have to be some kind of a solution and most likely it'll be through some sort of political dialogue and some kind of establishment of a special administrative uh, regime for that territory. But I want to get your take on that. I mean, how do you see this evolving? How do you see uh, any kind of a solution occurring? Because it seems to me quite obvious that there is simply no way, no way whatsoever that Kiev is going to be able to impose its military will on the east of Ukraine. Simultaneously, the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk militias, the self-defense forces, these, these groups are not going to be able to militarily outright destroy the Ukrainian military, especially with U.S. backing and European backing. In the midst of all of this, you have total economic collapse setting in in Ukraine. So I'm wondering, and I know we haven't even really touched on the economic angle here and the IMF and all of that stuff, but I'm wondering, within this maelstrom, is it even feasible that a political settlement can be reached? Yeah, the, the Ukrainian government, uh, once again, after having been refused uh, gifts from Russia, has asked the European Union uh, to pay for its gas 
uh, for this winter. They're near bankruptcy. They're going to go into default uh, despite whatever deals have been reached with some of their creditors. They are an absolutely terrible economic system. The Maidan has revolution, whatever, putsch, uh, which more accurately described it, has destroyed the economy of the Ukraine. Russia's long-term strategy. Now, I disagree believe this is rather cynical uh, and uh, maybe coldly pragmatic towards the people uh, of Donbass, but they want this Donbass as part of Ukraine. They simply believe that the final political settlement won't occur until this government collapses, uh, this regime collapses, which they believe will happen because of its economic destruction of the country, its fighting within itself, as we saw uh, in Kiev this week, and its own internal contradictions. But isn't that a dangerous isn't that a dangerous scenario to allow play out? Because a, con- uh, a collapse of the government in Kiev is likely to bring about an even worse government, not a more reform-minded, democratic-minded government, but one that could either be directly in the hands of Kolomoisky or one of the other oligarchs, or you know, with 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 literal Nazi shock troops guarding the government. I mean, this I understand the pragmatism of it, the need to allow the government in Kiev to collapse. But is the alternative an e- is it even better? I'm going to be even more cynical and say that the Kremlin knows that very much. Uh, They know that that would be the result of this government collapses, at least in the short term. But then the U.S. and the EU wouldn't even wouldn't be able to supply the support and more importantly, the tens of billions of Western taxpayers of dollars that have poured into Kiev to prop up this regime. They wouldn't be able to continue it. Um, And Russia would be very much vindicated in their position. Um, And uh, if necessary, then they would have uh, no problems taking over military action uh, to to remove this uh, even worse government of more openly uh, far right and fascist uh, if that happens. Uh, So I, I think, again, even that is part of the Kremlin's long-term geopolitical strategy in Ukraine. Very interesting. Um, we're going to have to watch it closely. I'm going to have to have you back at some point in the future to, uh, to. To, to to track some of these developments. Again, uh, listeners, I've been chatting with Mark Sloboda. He is a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst. He is a veteran of the U.S. Navy, and uh, you should follow him on Twitter at MarkSloboda1. Mark, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks, Eric. Counterpunch, love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and uh, now I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, someone who I've been looking forward to speaking with for a number of weeks now. I've been I've been wanting to get him on the program, but scheduling and some other things have sort of gotten in the way. But I'm pleased to have Jay Therapel on the program today. Jay is a political analyst. He is based in Australia. He is a member of the very important Australian-based organization, Hand off Syria, which uh, I follow regularly. They are a very important resource. They stand in solidarity with Syria, with the Syrian people, and uh, a a wealth of information and organizing out of Australia. So uh, I'm pleased to have Jay on the program. Jay, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Eric. I appreciate a lot of the work that you've put into informing us all about uh, the nature of these wars and, and the nature of imperialism in general. So your input has been welcome and and it's been fantastic. Well, thank you. And mutual admiration aside, let us uh, let us talk about uh, Syria here because sure. you know I wanted to have you on the program for the last few weeks because I know that you recently got back from Syria, and I just want to talk a little bit about that because you know uh, a number of weeks ago I had uh, Reem Saker on the program and she was actually calling from Syria, and one of the angles that I took in that conversation and what I want to touch on with you is the reality of what's happening in Syria right now, what you saw, what your experience was like being there. So talk a little bit about that, uh, how the trip was organized, how long were you there, what was your impression? Well, I was in Syria during the second half of July. I um, went as a part of an Australian delegation, which included two boxers. One of them is Jacob Najjar, who's an Iraqi-Australian professional boxer, and the other's father, Father Dave Smith, who's a boxing priest, actually, and he's visited a few times now. Um, the others were members of my organization, Hands Off Syria, namely Professor Tim Anderson, Marlene Obeid, and Reem Saker, as you mentioned. She was our translator. And um, like you said, um, you've, you've interviewed her, so you interviewed her from Syria. Um, we stayed in Damascus, Latakia, and Tartus. So these are three cities whose populations have at least doubled as a result of the war. Um, so the boxers in Syria, they promoted their sport, did their thing in the ring against worthy local opponents, while we in Hands Off Syria focused on on meetings with the government ministers and public officials who spoke to us about the challenges facing their country, and we delivered donations worth about $16,000 to hospitals and charities as well. So in in being in, in Damascus, which is, of course, the capital, Latakia, a very important uh, coastal city, as well as Tartus, um, what was what was it like? I mean, what did you witness in terms of daily life? Uh, speaking to yeah. people there, what what did they say about um, you know how their lives have changed? I mean, obviously they've changed dramatically. This is a war; it's wartime for them. But uh, give us give us a flavor of some of the things that they talked about, some of the daily challenges they're facing, how their lives have changed. Well, yeah. I mean, firstly, as you know, the Western corporate media narrative talks of an authoritarian dictatorship cracking down on a popular uprising, but that becomes very difficult to believe when you see everyday life in Damascus. So my first impression of Damascus was to see Syrian soldiers everywhere just fraternizing with ordinary civilians. Um, So on my street in Damascus, I was going for a walk, and this was on the second day that I was there. So... I was going for a walk to the bank to change some currency. And on the way there, um, you know, you can see soldiers stationed on every block. 
Sometimes they're sitting down. Sometimes they're playing cards or, or chess over coffee and argile. Sometimes they're playing with children. Um, and I was stopped by a soldier who was just curious as to who I was. And so I told him in some broken Arabic that I wanted to change some of my currency. Um, so he pointed me in the right direction. But when I got there, the bank was closed. When I told him on my way back that I had no success in getting my money, the man actually, and he actually did this, he reached into his pocket and he offered to give me a few hundred lira. Obviously, I refused, but just the fact that he was willing to do that, I mean, it shows that that the people who are fighting this war are just ordinary people who have regular jobs and lives, and they've been thrust into this situation. I mean, I spoke to a woman who, who fought in the NDF, and she told me that she experienced serious psychological trauma when she killed her first militant. And so it's everyday citizens like this who are defending Syria. And if the bulk of these men and women um, didn't believe the government was worth defending, then their apathy alone would have been enough for the government to fall because conscripts, as you you know, are utterly useless at repressing genuinely popular movements. Um, and so when we, when we experienced that for the first time, Tim would often jump in and contrast the friendship that we saw between the Syrian people and their army with his experience in fascist Latin American dictatorships that he visited in the, in the 1980s, where the people often cowered before the army. So that was one of the most striking things for me, um, walking through Damascus. You know, one of the things that, that, that I find so interesting and in just in, in thinking about what you're talking about and thinking back to my conversation with uh, Rim Saker was she mentioned a point, and I want to I wanna get your take on this, that I thought was very important. She said that it's absolute misconception and deliberate misconception by the Western corporate media when they refer to the Syrian military and the soldiers as quote-unquote Assad loyalists when she yeah. made the point that it, it they're, it's not that they're loyalists to Assad, it's that they're loyal to Syria, to their nation that they are a national defense force rather than Assad's personal army and I want to get your take on that, uh, uh, the extent to which that was sort of palpable for you in, in, in these experiences that you had with the soldiers there? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, when, when you look at the Syrian army, I mean, there are some facts that just speak for themselves. It is overwhelmingly a conscript army, um, which means that it's, you know, made up of, of people who don't really have an institutional investment in being there. They want to go in, do their service and get out. And like I said before, these are the last people you want to defend an unpopular government. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, one thing about one of the misconceptions about Syria comes down to, um, how much support the government actually has or whether it has any support and the nature of the, the entire conflict in general. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is yeah. that when part of what I'm, part of what I want to do and part of what I work at doing so, so much is to pierce through the propaganda that we're inundated with when it comes to Syria. You know, I've been attacked obviously personally, but that's sort of irrelevant. I just mean that the narrative that we hear, whether it's from right wing yeah. media, left liberal media, it doesn't really matter that they portray this as basically a strongman dictatorship and yeah. his loyal military, uh, defending a regime against an uprising and my point is that that's not what it is that this is a national military force defending their nation against what they perceive correctly I would I would add as an international imperialist assault against their very lives 
when you speak to Syrians about the toll that this war has taken on their lives, they'll mention the martyrs in their family, they'll mention the hardships they've suffered, but you also get a sense like that they're that they're putting on a brave face in a sense. So I was lucky enough to meet some Syrians who I had interacted with only on Facebook or over the phone. So two of them um, are brothers, Sam and Mazin, and their story goes to the heart of exactly what you were saying, that people are picking up arms not because they have some kind of personal loyalty to Bashar al-Assad, but because they feel like they're defending their country. So these two, they've served in the National Defense Forces, the NDF, um, and they're civilian volunteers who support the army. Um, so on the second day that we were in the old city, this is a bit of a funny story, um, uh, we were walking past the iconic Umayyad Mosque, and Mazin tells me not to worry about the explosions in the background, but then his younger brother Sam chimes in and says, oh, but if you hear a loud whistle, that's an incoming mortar, so you should hit the ground face down and cover the back of your neck. It was a bit of a shock, but you realize that people learn to accept the reality with which they're presented, even if it's the nightmare of watching their country being just ruthlessly punished by the empire. But this speaks volumes about the the generation of young people who have been completely transformed by this war. Um, Sam, for example, studied cooking. He wanted to be a chef, you know, but when they started hearing stories of death squad violence, they felt they had an obligation to take up arms. Mazin told me a story about how in Harasta in 2012, I believe, um, his mother witnessed a barber being executed, shot in the head in the middle of the street in broad daylight for the supposed crime of having fraternized with Syrian army soldiers. Um, and this was at a time prior to the to the town's so-called liberation by the Free Syrian Army, again, so-called Free Syrian Army. Um, and so people have a genuine material interest in taking up arms in defense of their towns, cities, schools, hospitals, factories, you name it. Yeah, and that's really, I think, an important point here is that um, this war is not simply a political war. It's not simply uh, the military fighting on behalf of their leadership. It's in defense of their homes. It's in defense of their families. This is a national defense mission, and I think that that aspect of it is deliberately left out of the corporate media narrative because when it's framed in that way, it becomes very... Uh, it's hard not to be sympathetic to the Syrian side when you see that they're fighting Saudis and Tunisians and Libyans and, and Chechens and this international terrorist force that has invaded their country. That's casting the narrative in a very different light. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there are so many other stories, right? So just on the so-called FSA, uh, the Syrians we spoke to, I mean, they don't even make this absurd distinction between ISIS and the so-called moderate rebels, because in the West, they try and create this distinction between the moderate rebels who are told are Syrian and ISIS who are told are foreign, as if there's a clear-cut demarcation between these two groups um, in terms of, uh, you know, ideology and brutality and whatnot. Um, but when you speak to Syrians, I mean, for them, they've all committed heinous crimes. Um, so we heard from one of our drivers that when the city of Adra, which is a few hours north of Damascus, was controlled by Jabhat al-Nusra. The road that bypassed it was often littered with dead bodies because the terrorists would just snipe at anyone. I heard stories from people who said that in 2012, when the FSA would take over government hospitals, they would empty them of their civilian patients and force the doctors to treat insurgents. So what kind of a popular uh, popular uprising does this kind of a th does these kind of things? 
Um, of course, these stories are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to atrocities, but for Syrians experiencing this firsthand, it genuinely feels like the terrorism they face will continue because the intention behind it, um, and this is what a lot of Syrians feel, they feel that the intention behind this at this stage, like four and a half years later, is to bleed the Syrian state by just wrecking, looting, bombing everything from you know, schools to power lines. So this has effectively united the country in a sense. So people who five years ago were demanding democratic reforms, who were had very strong words to, to say about the corruption in the country, had very strong um, opinions about what the constitution should look like, a lot of them have been kind of satisfied by the fact that uh, the Syrian uh, government has made a serious effort to address the legitimate grievances of the Syrian people. And now those people who formed the the democratic opposition to the Syrian government, when it was actually democratic, before it was militarized, they now find themselves standing shoulder to shoulder with their army. So in closing, I mean, what you notice about the mood of the Syrian people is it's one of defiant patriotism. There's almost a sense that this is the price that Syria is being forced to pay for its political and economic independence and especially for its long history of opposing Zionist expansion and its support for the Palestinian resistance as well. So for the Syrian people, I mean, when President Assad says there's no option but victory other than the end of there's no option but victory other than the end of Syria itself, right? Um, the people take that seriously, not because they're brainwashed as the Western media would have us believe but because it fits within their lived experience. It fits with everything that they've seen and heard about um, the brutality of the insurgents that were led to believe are freedom fighters. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I think that that's also a really important point. I've made this point a number of times that um, many of the opposition groups, the legitimate indigenous opposition inside of Syria, uh, what it was in 2011, it it's a vastly different scenario now. I mean, whether you're talking about those national coordinating councils, yeah. the local coordinating committees, you know, these these various groups, some of the leftist uh, political formations, the Marxists, the Marxist-Leninists, the uh, uh, pan-Arab socialists, and many of these other groups, there were a number of different parties, a number of different political leanings, and all of them have sort of melded together with the government or, you know, loyal government uh, political formation, the Ba'ath and its associated parties, um, all of them now really stand together in defense of the nation. And that political transformation inside of Syria is also something that is completely uh, removed, uh, scrubbed from the narrative, because if you frame it in that way, it changes how, you're, how you really look at what's gone on in the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the initial conflation with Syria was to say that um, the democratic movement, which obviously existed, was the same as the insurgents trying to overthrow the state. Um, so there was a conflation between those fighting for a theocracy and those fighting for a democracy, and that's a mistake that like, no sane person should make, especially when you look at what people are actually campaigning for. I remember I was speaking to um, this one woman in Syria, and she works for an organization that... Um, wants to secularize Syria's legal system anymore so they can remove all kind of elements of, of religion from it because it is still based on like a watered-down version of Sharia law which they inherited from the Ottoman Empire. Um, 
And so, I mean, one of the things that she talked to me about was the Constitution, where even today it says that the president of Syria must be a Muslim, you know. Now, her and, and the people that she associates with, they're not in favor of these kind of clauses, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood, um, just to give you a bit of a historical perspective on this, in 1973, when Hafez al-Assad omitted that clause from the Constitution, the clause which says that the president must be a Muslim, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood responded by having riots and protests, and a few years later, they started by by waging a campaign of terror um, against the Syrian state. So, I mean, not only is it silly, um, it's 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 wrong on on another level as well, which is to say that the desires of the the Syrian democracy movement are completely antithetical to the desires, even of the most so-called moderate rebel faction in Syria, whoever they may be. Yeah, and that's the point that I've always made too. Is that um, you know, because I'll I'll hear all kinds of all kinds of slurs. You know, when I write about Syria, I'm an Assad apologist, a propagandist, a Stalinist, and all these other silly uh, silly things that are said about me, uh, or just about anybody who writes about Syria in I think a realistic way. Um, but the the truth is that it's not really about Assad. It's not really about the Ba'ath Party. It's about Syria and the ability and the right of Syrian people to determine their own political course. And I think that the point has to be made that it is only after this uh, this war can be ended and peace can be brought to Syria that you could then have this political process when all of these different factions, this uh, the various movements, the various trends and tendencies within the movements, when they can actually sit down at a table, have a political dialogue and move towards reforming the country, which is actually and surprisingly for, for some, this is what Assad has really said for a long time now, that he was willing to engage in a reform process with dialogue, but that he was not willing to extend that sort of dialogue to any of the terrorist elements or any of the so-called, you know, the, the, the Syrian National Council, the expatriates and puppets handpicked by the United States and its allies. They're not allowed to participate in it, A, because they're not really Syrians, and B, because they're supporting by the forces that are destroying the country. Absolutely, and there's another reason as well, which is that in the Syrian constitution, when they voted in a new constitution, which had provisions for the licensing of new political parties and allowed these new political parties to participate in the parliament, um, one of the stipulations was that parties based around um, religion or sect or ethnicity were banned. Um, so that automatically bans the Muslim Brotherhood from from participating um, but when you speak to the Syrian people about these kind of these aspects of their constitution, you get the impression that um, they don't want their political sphere to be dominated by politics of religious conservatism because they see that as being um, a, dis- a, a divisive element of their society which is being exploited by the West to, to divide them even further. Um, just about... Uh, um, like why it is that, that that Syrians are fighting? I mean, when people personalize it and make it make it about Assad, it's it's almost as if they forget that Syria is a post-colonial nation, that imperialism exists, that imperialism seeks to enter countries and reorganize their economies um, to suit their interests. Right. So what's what was actually really interesting to me is how resilient the Syrian economy is in dealing with the pressures of war and sanctions. 
So when you consider that the Syrian currency is now only a sixth of its former value, and when you consider the crippling financial sanctions imposed on Syria by the West, designed of course to strangle the state, the government still manages to do a reasonable job in terms of providing human services. The government still ensures that bread can be purchased at 15 liras. No easy task when you consider that the costs of producing and distributing bread have skyrocketed as a direct consequence of the government losing control over many oil fields in the northeast of the country, which has driven up the price of oil, of course. Um, so that's part of the reason why, and this is never mentioned in our media, the reason why 8 out of 12 Syrian refugees are internally displaced. They flee yes, exactly. the safety of government areas where they know they'll have access to that to that subsidized bread fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, you can see everywhere. I mean, whenever you go to any city, like the ones that I went to, Damascus, Latakia, and Tartus, you see number plates of different governorates, you know, all over the place because I can read a little bit of Arabic and so I figured that out. Um, and, uh, and these cities have witnessed the doubling of their populations over the course of the war. So, I mean, part of the reason for this, like, this ability for Syria to withstand four and a half years of covert war um, is because they have a history of emphasizing economic self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. And this is something else that the Syrians recognize and, and they understand that this is like worth fighting for and worth defending. Um, like even when I went to buy some shoe polish at the local store, I looked underneath and it said made in Syria. So this self-sufficiency is part of the reason why Syria, prior to the war, despite having a per capita income of only around $3,000, managed to outperform its Arab neighbors on life expectancy, education, healthcare, women's rights, and human services. And as we know, I mean, the Washington consensus after the overthrow of the Soviet Union has been to encourage economic policies um, that enable the penetration of uh, finance capital, which essentially aims to reconfigure the economies of these countries like Syria around the purchasing power of the West. When you read the U.S. State Department's own investment climate report on Syria, it features as a litany of complaints about how Syria isn't accommodating enough to foreign private capital. Mm -hmm. But it's precisely this economic independence that a lot of Syrians have benefited from when you compare what they had compared to other countries in the so-called third world. It's this economic independence that has allowed Syria to so far survive what I believe to be the most vicious, dirty war in modern history. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And actually, you're kind of leading into my next question because I did want to shift gears in the time uh, that we have remaining and ask you, um, well, look, uh, your political um, ideological position, like mine, is on the left, and sure. uh, you know some might say the more the more radical left. And we encounter a lot of um, I would call it confusion and conflict on the left when it comes to the issue of Syria. And so I want to ask you. Uh, I guess it's a two part question from your sure. perspective. A why should Syria matter so much to leftists? And B, why do so many leftists get it so wrong? Well, for the first question, um, if, if you accept the premise that um, uh, Syria is the victim of an imperialist proxy war, um, then it should be automatic, I believe, for anyone on the left to say that Syria needs to be defended. That's if you if you accept that premise. Um, and I've gone through the kind of litany of reasons why. I mean, like its economic independence is something that would be threatened um, 
if the if the state were to fall, uh, the Palestinian resistance would suffer if the Syrian state were to fall, and and just generally, I mean, the the strategy of imperialism appears to be to cause as many divisions as possible in that region in in Iraq as well. Um, and well, so hold on, if, hold on a second. I of course, I of course accept that premise, but let's play devil's advocate because a lot of people on the left don't. They'll say, "No, this is a revolution. Uh, you're you're demonizing the revolutionaries by conflating them with ISIS and Al Nusra Front when they're not all uh, ISIS and Al Nusra, and even some of the Nusra guys are revolutionaries. And this is a this is a movement to overthrow a dictator, and leftists should support all revolutions that will seek to overthrow reaction." dictatorships ah yes um i've got a word for this actually i refer to it as the uh the gamblers um gamblers theory of revolution which is to say <laughs> um, let me try let me try and contain myself um so i think it just makes your blood boil when you hear that i know yeah yeah i mean the general theory i mean the gamblers theory of revolution it goes like this if there's instability in any country especially a post-colonial country or a socialist country, then the imperial left attitude, let's call them that, is inclined towards supporting the overthrow of that state in the hope, and this is the gambling part, that the power vacuum will produce somehow a more progressive government. I mean, that, of course, has nothing in common with the historically the historical materialist approach towards, towards understanding any social phenomena. So... I remember in one argument with one of these imperial leftists, he said that um, working class grievances in Syria justified an uprising. He said there's inequality in Syria, there's poverty, there's unemployment, and this justifies an uprising. I responded by saying, look, just because an arbitrary level of inequality in your mind morally justifies an uprising, that doesn't necessarily mean that the said inequality is the primary cause of that so-called uprising. I said that making that leap um, requires a great deal of evidence and, and proving on your part. So now that there's mountains of evidence suggesting that the covert arming and funding of anti-government mercenaries amounts to one of the most well-funded proxy wars in modern history, and by proxy war I mean states paying mercenaries to overthrow another state, I mean the CIA themselves have admitted to spending a billion dollars training 10,000 mercenaries. That's what they're admitting alongside, quote, uh, a broader multi-billion dollar effort involving Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey. And that's according to the Washington Post. Given this reality, to then strongly suggest that the primary cause of all of this war in Syria is Syria's inequality or its economic policies or because it's a little bit too neoliberal, according to these imperial leftists, that's extremely naive, especially when far worse social pressures in far poorer countries have almost never by themselves produced an insurgency on this scale. Um, having said all of this, we have to acknowledge one thing about the imperial left, which is that they have lost the debate decisively. They don't hold rallies supporting their so-called revolution. They don't write articles about it all that much. And the few who do get torn to pieces anyway by the likes of yourself, by Tim Anderson, by Patrick Higgins and, and others. And I think deep down inside, they know they're wrong, which is why... So many of them, almost out of nowhere, started endorsing the Kurdish YPG when it became too embarrassing to endorse the so-called FSA. But the YPG are in a de facto alliance with the Syrian government, so now they have to reconcile their support for the overthrow of the Syrian state, which, if it did happen, would bring about even greater misery for Syria's Kurdish population, 
who had been encircled by the likes of ISIS and al-Nusra, who are obviously hell-bent on destroying their entire project. Um, so in other words, um, just about the imperial left, I'd say that many of us, like yourself, myself, we've played a part in basically ripping their fangs out, to quote my friend Dr. Tim Anderson. I hope so. Um, and it's still, I, I still get it. I still get the hate mail from certain uh, quarters, but it's definitely not, um, it's definitely not particularly effective. And it doesn't really affect me at all in terms of getting hate mail. And I think that ultimately their narrative, just as you said, it's it's collapsed or we've managed to destroy it or some combination thereof. Yeah. Um, I, I want to touch on one other, one other issue here before I let you go. Um, something that's dominating the headlines, of course, right now uh, all over the world, and that is the quote-unquote the migrant crisis or yeah, perhaps yeah. better better said, the refugee crisis. And certainly it's not relegated only to Syria. Um, you have uh, refugees from Libya, from Somalia, from Afghanistan, from many places who are trying to make their way to Europe and, and, and to various other shores. And actually, you're in Australia, and Australia Australia has its own uh, issue with migrants and uh, its own issue with um, let's let's call them fascistic policies towards these migrants. So I want to talk a little bit about that. What is your take on the migrant crisis? Uh, not only the, uh, the the crisis itself or the and the narrative around it and the media coverage, but how you think it it should be understood and should be addressed. Well. Um just on Australia. Uh, yes, Australia has a long, uh, ugly history. Um, it was founded as a genocidal colonial settler state, as you know, and that general racism, I believe, extends to its treatment of refugees. Um, I think, uh, like, um, when it comes to Australia, like, and when you compare Australia to Europe, I do believe that Europe appears to... Uh, position itself as being willing to take in a lot more refugees. I've heard that Germany plans on taking in about 800,000 Syrian refugees. And I know that um, here in Australia, there's no way something like that would happen unless there was a seismic shift in political will. Um, ultimately, the provocation of any racism in the West moves in tandem with imperial foreign policy. So over the past week, there's been a lot of attention um, directed at the plight of Syrian refugees, um, as well as other refugees, but particularly the Syrian ones who are making that journey across the Mediterranean to Europe, especially after we saw those tragic images of Elan al-Kurdi, who died at sea, drowned at sea. Um, but I think here's where we have to be a little bit more kind of analytical about everything that's happening. I think we should... I think we should ask ourselves why this story has received so much attention compared to the plight of Syrians living under the terror of the so-called moderate rebels, which gets almost no attention in the West. Now, this is the part where I'm, I'm really calling this early, but I think it's fair to assume that those fueling the covert war against Syria definitely have an interest in encouraging the emigration of Syrians en masse as refugees to drain the country of its citizens and therefore undermine the government's ability to resist. If those interests are at play here, then I can definitely see Europe taking a more liberal stand on refugees and allowing more of them in, um, a more liberal stand compared to Australia, that is. Because, I mean, what, one thing about the Syrian refugee issue that isn't mentioned is that um, the majority of Syrian refugees, let's say about eight out of every 11 Syrian refugees, are internally displaced. They live within Syria, as I mentioned before. 
And so it's really incumbent upon us to make that known to people that the majority of refugees live within Syria. And the best way to help them is to is to um, support charities that help the Syrian government. I think that that's true. And I, I think that, um, look, we don't know exactly the covert operations that are at play here. I think it's likely, you know, it's 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 logical and likely to assume that. I think that also um, we have to remember that a lot of the a lot of the people trafficking, the human trafficking that's going on in Syria, as well as in Libya and some other places, this is the uh, revenue generating mechanism for the Islamic State, for ISIS and ISIL and some of these other death squads that are actually operating in this way. I had uh, our mutual friend Sukant Chandan on this program a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about this issue, about the death squads are not simply looting. They're not simply generating revenue by stealing it. They're also generating revenue by running these illicit uh, smuggling networks internationally. And I think we need to recognize that a lot of the, the human trafficking that's going on is money that's exchanging hands and ending up in the pockets of a lot of these same terrorist elements absolutely um one like historical example that we can use to draw a parallel is that um there were large refugee camps in in pakistan during the soviet afghan war um and then uh the taliban essentially grew out of these refugee camps you know so similarly um today turkey is is syria's pakistan in a sense it's playing that exact same role and so when refugees do go into Turkey, I mean, sometimes I am kind of concerned. I think, is there going to be human trafficking? I mean, you can bet that there most certainly is. I haven't read too much about that subject. Yeah, and I think that the point here is not necessarily to diagnose all of the different reasons for why this is happening. I mean, in a place like Syria, we know that many of the refugees who have fled are uh, relatives and families of people who are fighting against the government, people who have taken up arms against the government and who feel like that uh, they they see that the government hasn't fallen, therefore they fear for themselves and they want to get out of the country. I think that's a very real issue. I think there are some people, and this is just this is just a fact of, uh, fact of the real world in any war situation when there's conscription, there's some people who are trying to avoid conscription, who don't want to fight in the war, who don't want to put their lives on the line for Syria, for Assad, for anybody, and they're trying to flee the country for that reason, to save themselves. There are some who have family in Europe who think that uh, they can use this opportunity to get out of the country and to reunite with their family. I mean, there are complex reasons for why this would be happening, but I think you're right in the sense that it's not necessarily a coincidence that this is all coming to a head right now. I think that there are very concrete material reasons why this is happening now, given the fact that the regime change operation has failed, given the fact that uh, the Brookings Institution and the Council on Foreign Relations and a lot of these groups have written white papers basically saying that there will be no overthrow of the government by the Free Syrian Army, that that policy has simply failed. I think that they are moving to more, let's call it, asymmetrical, irregular uh, tactics to drain Syria of its human capital. Yeah, um, I mean, when I said that uh, that this is what I what I suspect, you know, um, really it was because I was having a conversation with Mimi Allaham, Syrian girl partisan, and when I mentioned this, she kind of responded by saying, "I was thinking exactly the same thing," and then another friend of ours, Steve 
jumped in and said, oh, hey, I was thinking exactly the same thing. And the reason we started thinking these, thinking about it this way was because, like, I, for example, I saw this one picture that came up on Facebook and it was basically praising um, Erdogan, Turkey's um, leader, because of because Turkey had taken in 1.8 million Syrian refugees or something like that. And then I saw another one which, um, which was criticizing Tony Abbott, quite rightly, but uh, it's the context, you know, where it said Germany is taking in 800,000 Syrian refugees. Why aren't we doing more? And it just seemed like a coordinated um, kind of attempt by the media to really exploit that poor child's death, you know, in order to push uh, like an underhanded agenda, you know, which is to try and drain Syria of its of its civilian population through emigration and, and making them refugees. Yeah, and, um, and and again, we're not we can't we can't say that we have any concrete evidence of such a wide ranging conspiracy or whatever. But it falls in line with the sort of tactics that have been used to this point. Um, we're we're pretty much out of time, Jay. But I just want to give you one last opportunity to. Uh, Mention, you know, um, your your organization, Hands Off Syria, some of the work you're doing, how people can get in touch, how people can support you and connect with you. So anything you want to uh, express to the listeners? Other than our Facebook page, we do have our website, which is www.handsoffsyriasydney.com. Um, we're engaged in uh, in charity, of course, so we we have gala dinners where we raise money, which we send to Syria. Um, but other than that, we see ourselves as being like a counter-propaganda type outfit. So whenever there's propaganda about the Syrian government, we try and counter it. Um, that's basically what we do. And um, yeah. Excellent. Well, um, Jay, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Jay Therapel of Hands Off Syria, uh, based in Australia. You're doing excellent work. Um, keep it up. And thanks again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, listeners, um, follow us. Follow us. Uh, give us positive reviews on iTunes. Help spread the word about the program. I'm trying to bring as many different critical perspectives on as many different issues as possible. People like Jay, uh, who can come on and talk about their experiences and these are the voices that you won't get in the corporate media. So again, thanks for the support. And uh, as always, I'll speak to you very soon again next week.